Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 37. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People eating, drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day of the Son of, the, the, the day the Son of Man is revealed. <clears throat> Excuse me. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding corn together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord? they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father God, I pray that you would be pleased to bless us. This is, this is serious, Father. This feels like life or death, justice or not, peace or not. And pray that you'd speak to each one of us with comfort and truth from your word. In Jesus' name, we dare to ask it, not in our own. Amen. How often do you think about the Roman Empire? I see some of you laugh. Um, that, that rather random question has been a thing on the internet, hasn't it? Um, a TikTok, apparently. Uh, I think it's got like billions of views, this trend. Women realizing that if they ask their husbands or boyfriends, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? They get hilarious answers, uh, like every day or every other day, or at least once a week, or you know, that seems to be the, the general gist of it all. You can look it up, it's quite funny. Um, Sarah asked me, how, so how, go on then, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I said, every other day? She said, no, you don't. I, 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 I think I actually do. <laughs> I have extra reasons, because Romans are in the Bible, and if you're a pastor, you have to think of other books. So, um, anyway. Uh, there, you know, people are trying to come up with reasons why historian Mary Beard thinks, well, maybe this is a way of men tapping into a masculinity that's kind of safe and historical. Maybe, maybe, this, maybe, maybe I don't know. I don't know. Jesus would like to know how often you think about the kingdom of God, his, his empire. I don't, really, I don't mind at all how much you think about the Roman empire. I do mind, I do care. How often do you think about Jesus' empire, God's kingdom? Because that matters enormously. 
that affects the way you live your life, what you're prepared to give up, what you're hoping for in the world. How often do you think about the kingdom of God? And uh, today in our Bible reading, it is about the kingdom of God. And I think it really comes down at the point at the end to verse 33. Do you still have it there in front of you? Or you might just want to listen carefully. Verse 33. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I take it from that verse, which is repeated elsewhere in the Bible, being a Christian should feel like losing in some sense. Jesus expects you to feel somewhat like a loser for being a Christian. Interesting. Why, why is that? Well, it's because you have to shed some things. You have to be willing to give some things up for the kingdom of God. Of course, it doesn't end there, thankfully, because there's a second half of the sentence which says, and you will gain. You will preserve your soul. You will find that you are uh, winning, thanks to the grace of God. But there should be a sense in which you feel like a loser. And maybe for you, you do feel like a loser for being a Christian at the moment. Perhaps it's very difficult, the pressure you're being put under by colleagues or your spouse, or your children, or your parents. Maybe if you, you, your Christian friend feels like a loser, they are, they're under intense pressure, and you want to know how to help them. Or maybe you've never thought about it that way, it wouldn't really, being a Christian, does that feel like being a loser? Surely it's just a matter of private faith, isn't it? Well, I want you to recognize verse 33 today, you, you need to lose your life in order to preserve it. In all of those cases, whoever you are, Jesus wants to talk to you about the kingdom of God. If I were to try and give you a a sermon in one sentence today, I would say this. The kingdom of God has been to earth and will be revealed one day. The kingdom of God has been to earth and it will be revealed one day. And you may detect in there, there is a sense in which the kingdom of God is already and there is also a sense in which the kingdom of God has, it, it, there's more to come. It, it will be revealed one day. Okay, so sometimes Christians talk about the now and the not yet. And this is, I'm going to try and show you both halves of that in today's passage. I'll put it like this. Um, firstly, the kingdom of God was revealed in Jesus Christ. And secondly, the kingdom of God will be revealed on the day of the Son of Man. Okay, so there again you have the, the already and the not yet. I'm also going to do something unusual in this sermon, which is I'm going to try and comment on the situation in Israel and Palestine. Because our teaching today is based around what God's kingdom on earth is and what we're hoping for in the future. Now, I plan to tread particularly carefully, and I'll, I'll explain when I get there what, uh, why I'm doing it. Firstly, then, the kingdom of God was revealed in Jesus Christ. I'm looking at verses 20. And 21. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. So, the Pharisees that get mentioned, they were Jews in ancient Israel, and like many Jewish people, they were expecting the kingdom of God to come. So, they asked the question, Can you tell us about the kingdom of God? And they were expecting this golden age of glory led by a Messiah figure. And Messiah is the title of the promised one, the the king, the anointed ruler. So they come to Jesus and they say, could you tell us when that's arriving, please? Because we're really looking forward to that age. They realized they hadn't got there yet because they were ruled by the Roman Empire. Aha, there you go again. And um, people like Pontius Pilate or Augustus Caesar, they were household names and they... 
the, the sentries and the guards and the spears were a daily reminder that the, the golden age of the kingdom of God hadn't come yet, as far as they could tell. But the thing is, they couldn't see very far. It's like they, they hadn't been to Specsavers with spiritual eyesight. Because Jesus says, the king, kingdom of God is standing in your midst. Intriguing phrase, isn't it, which Jesus doesn't explain, but I think, it, I think it must mean, guys, I'm the king of the kingdom of God. I, I am the Messiah. So you're, you're waiting, sort of, where, where, where's the kingdom of God going to come then? And he's saying, hello, I'm here, I am the one. Of course, last week we saw how Jesus had just healed 10 men of leprosy, which is um, a fulfillment of some of the Old Testament prophecies, prophecies about how the Messiah would bring healing and, and peace and shalom and togetherness. And of course, Peter's already said in Luke's gospel, ah, oh, I get it, you're the Messiah. If I were to try and modernize this a little bit, I might try and compare it to the Blitz in World War II. You've seen those photos of um, when the air raids would have happened in this city and you'd get bombed out neighborhoods and the morning after, people would be picking through the rubble, wondering what on earth has happened to my house. And on a few occasions, the king and the queen would come and they'd walk around seeing the devastation with, with the Londoners. Have you ever seen those photos? That's very powerful, they didn't have to do that. And I imagine there was a sense in which as the Londoners wailed, when will this horrible war be over? You know, when will we have peace? When will the United Kingdom rise up against this enemy? The king and queen might have said, well, that's coming, but we are also here in your midst. You know, the, the kingdom is in some way represented in us, and we've come to be with you. Now, it's not a perfect example, because we could have lost the war, and you know, that, that was no binding promise that they, that they knew was going to come true. However, it's much better in Jesus, because the Son of God comes down from heaven, and he comes to be in amongst people, and they might be wailing, when will this earth be over? When will all the pain and suffering be done? And when will the oppressor get their comeuppance? And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. I'm here. And nothing was going to beat him. At this moment in the Bible, Jesus knows, he knows that they want armies, they want politics, they want turnover, but what he gives them at that time is this gentle king standing in their midst, looking at them, saying, I'm, I'm here, I'm here. Right, sidebar. Uh, I want to talk about politics in the Middle East for a moment and, and kingdoms, Israel and Palestine in particular. It might seem particularly odd to you that we do this in church. I certainly don't relish having to talk about something so painful and fraught in public. But some of you have been reading your Bibles, especially those of you reading Bible in a year as we work through every verse of the whole Bible bit by bit. And I know you've been watching the news. And as your pastor, my job is to teach you what God says. And in this case, I want to help you understand what the Bible says about Israel and Palestine. I don't intend to tell you what to think politically. I can think of Jewish and Palestinian friends and neighbors around here who I hope if they if they happen to be listening to this, they might think, okay, I can understand what he's trying to do as a Christian pastor. I do want to help you, though, as Christians, in your understanding about the Holy Land and the Kingdom of God and our hopes for the future. Uh, there are, I, I've tried to work out how do you condense an incredibly complex situation into something you can take away. So here's three things that I hope might be useful. Firstly, there are commands in the Old Testament to conquer the land. 
If you read the Old Testament in the Bible, you come across promises that Israel can have the land of Canaan, and it says, go and take it. These promises are often quoted by Israelis today. Indeed, I heard the Israeli Prime Minister citing one of them on the, on the news this morning, including at tourist sites. They also do that to, to justify their resettlement of the land. And, and this obviously rankles with Palestinians as you, you cite these commands, verses for conquest. But that's the first thing. There are, there are those verses. They're in the Old Testament in the Bible. Second thing. There are no commands to conquer the land in the New Testament. So in, with the New Covenant, there is nothing that says, right, go ahead, guys, go and take the land. Seizing land that way and defending it brutally is a misunderstanding of the Bible's story. The Old Testament kingdom of Israel has now been fulfilled and it's been expanded into the worldwide kingdom of God. We don't need to fight over the turf in the Middle East anymore. That belongs to the years marked BC in history and we don't live in that age. Now that Jesus the Messiah, the great peacemaker has come, his commands are things like turn the other cheek, love one another, teach them to obey everything I have commanded. Jesus is the true temple that we, that we recognize as the fulfillment of God's plans. So we don't need a temple to be located on a particular patch of ground where we control it. So that's the second thing. There are no commands to conquer the land in the New Testament. And third thing, and this really confuses everything, um, there are some Christians, they're called dispensational Zionist Christians, and they make it extra confusing because they misunderstand Old Testament promises and hold to millennial theories to justify the idea that the land still belongs to Israel and on that hangs the future of the world. And so those Christians are wanting the temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem and for sacrificial worship to carry on there. They want Christ to return and reign from Jerusalem. And this is often why America has been so involved in Israel. It's because some of the Christians there, the dispensational Zionist Christians, are trying to make sure that happens. They have a, a stake in the whole thing. And this is dangerous because it ends up saying, if you have a dispensational view of salvation, it, um, it ends up saying there are two ways to be saved. The first is by faith in Jesus Christ. It's true. But the second is by uh, being Jewish. And so that's why they call it a dispensation. It's a, it's a second way, a, a twin track way to be saved. So there are commands in the Old Testament to conquer the land. There are no New Testament commands to conquer the land. And it's extra confusing because of dispensational Zionist Christians. Nothing can justify cruelty and violence towards civilians. Jesus, above all others, teaches us to care deeply for the innocent and the powerless and the victims. And we know both Jews and Palestinians have been in that position. Clearly, there are no easy answers. But I hope you can see that here, as in everything, God's word offers comfort clarity, to run away from your Bible because you're scared of what it might say, actually just read it and ask if you don't understand. And the Middle East desperately needs a wise, compassionate, fair and powerful leader to bring Jews and Palestinians and every nation together into a kingdom of mutual love. There is only one leader like that. As we saw last week in verse 19 just before, he's the kind of leader who when a um, Samaritan leper falls on his knees before him, he says, you've got it. Rise and go, your faith has made you well.
So in short, the, the Middle East needs peace. It needs peace, doesn't it? And peace will only come ultimately through Jesus Christ. Right, that was, that was a sidebar. I want to try and reconnect you with, with the passage we studied today. Um, if you are reeling from that, then I've printed out what I just said and I've just extracted it and I've put it at the back. By all means, go away and think about it and we can discuss. I expect you will need to discuss. I've been saying to you, first of all, the kingdom of God was revealed in Jesus Christ. And now let's, let's consider the second part, which is that the kingdom of God will be revealed on the day of the Son of Man. Verses 22 to 37. The kingdom of God will be revealed on the day of the Son of Man. Little question for you. Anyone tell me? Verse 22, who's Jesus talking to there? Disciples, yes, thank you. Yeah, do you get the difference? So that's why I say it's two, two sections today, two differences. The first section, he's talking to the Pharisees. And he says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And then he actually turns and he talks to his disciples. So it's a different feeling, different audience for this one. And he's saying, look, the kingdom of God will be revealed on the day of the Son of Man. There's kind of a lot here. Let me try and break it into three subsections. Uh, Jesus, he knew it all in advance. He knows it will be business as usual. And he warns us there will be an irreversible separation. Okay, so 2A, Jesus knew it all in advance. Verses 22 to 25, he says, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. See how Jesus knew it all in advance. I find that amazing. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. You need to know that about him. He loves to do that. He, he knew three things in this short paragraph. He knew he would suffer. That hadn't, that hadn't come close to him yet, and yet he knew it. He knew he would ascend to heaven. So that's why he says in verse 22, you will long to see me, but you won't be able to. That, that hasn't come close to happening yet. And thirdly, he knows he's going to come again one day on the day of judgment, and it's going to be a global event. And obviously that hasn't happened yet. So three amazing things he knew. All of those things were, they, they must have seemed impossible at the time, don't you think? The idea that if he is the true Messiah, he was going to suffer. No way! And then the idea that he was somehow going to be away from, never, you're the Messiah, you're going to be away from us. And then this idea that he's going to come again in judgment for the whole world. But for us, two of those have already happened. I mean, how encouraging. No longer seems unlikely that Jesus Christ is going to return and judge the world. Not like it did. I have a friend who, um, who was riding her bike one day through the town where she lived, and she's Christian, and she saw this unusually bright star in the sky, and she thought, what's that? So she stopped her bike, and she just looked at this star, and she told the story afterwards. She said, I really thought Jesus was coming again. <laughs> I read my Bible. I thought, this is what it's going to be like. He's going to come in the sky. It'll be really obvious. So she just... Uh, sat there on her bike and she just waited for, for Jesus to come and, and wrap up the world. I, she, she told this story afterwards and I was very tempted to make fun and you know, it, it's, it's sort of tempted to think, oh, very naive. And yet on the other, I thought about it and thought, no, that's just a faithful Christian waiting for the revelation of the Son of Man. That's exactly what he's told us to do. 
He will return, and one day we'll all know it. She says after a few minutes, she, she realized that, that wasn't what was going on, and she, she went on her way. But um, I admire that kind of faith. Jesus knew it all in advance. Um, 2b, Jesus knows it will be business as usual. Verses 26 to 29. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were, were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Remember the story of Noah? One of the more well-known Bible stories. Big boat, lots of rain, like lots of rain like we've been having recently. And um, Jesus was saying, look, it was business as usual right up to the day Noah boarded. Restaurants were serving food. Invitations were being sent for weddings. People were probably planning their weekends. And they might have heard about the flood from Noah, but they didn't believe it was coming. And then it did. Or verse 28, he says, it was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Lot was Abraham's nephew. He also appears in the book of Genesis. He was warned to flee from the city of Sodom, and he did. Even though people would have been selling their stuff on eBay, or the equivalent in those days, they would have been planting their bulbs and their crops for springtime. They would have been building extension on, on their houses. And it would be like that in London on the day of the Son of Man. Business as usual. Buses running and carrying people to their destinations in and out of work. Cafes serving food. Cranes building skyscrapers. Roadworks happening as normal. And Jesus will return. Saw a rather nice headline this week um, from the Emirates Stadium. Uh, we don't know when Jesus will return, says Mikel Arteta. It was a glorious headline. Turns out they've got a player called Gabriel Jesus playing at Arsenal, and he's injured at the moment, and, and the manager doesn't know when he will return. Makes for a, a very nice headline. I think someone enjoyed themselves in, in the Times this week. But you, we don't know, but it, it will be business as usual on that day. And uh, to see, Jesus warns us there will be an irreversible separation. You know Jesus is very loving, right? He's, he's, he's renowned for being loving. He's the most loving human being who's ever lived. He's also very clear. And I want you to hear the clarity in his words here. Verse 30, it will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding corn together. One will be taken, and the other left. So Jesus is warning us that people who've worked together and people who've lived together, and people who've slept together will go to different destinations on that day. Some because of faith in Christ will go to heaven, and some because of no faith in Christ will have to go to hell. Some Christians love Jesus, but they can't imagine the idea of him ever doing that. I can't imagine Jesus ever condemning anybody he's kind of like um, a modern Santa Claus in that way have you noticed that Santa Claus he, he never says anything nasty anymore 
50 years ago, Santa Claus used to give nasty kids coal at Christmas time. That's what, that's, what, that's what I grew up with in the 80s. So if you were naughty, you'd get coal. And if you were nice, you'd get presents. But I, in the 21st century, I have not heard a single parent reference the coal. Anybody? Anybody heard of that? No, because you'd, you'd be called a mean parent. And, you, and it was, it's a horrible thing to do in, to your children at Christmas time. Because Santa has slid towards becoming this nice Santa who's incapable of actually saying anything tough. Whereas the original Santa was able to say the hard things to children as well as the rewards. And it's tempting to do that with Jesus. You can slide him towards, well, actually, I much prefer the kind of Jesus that doesn't say anything difficult ever again. And if he could just be nice to the whole human race, that would be fantastic. And that doesn't bring peace. That is incapable of unraveling justice in the world. And that's not the Jesus that's come down to us in the Bible. The real Jesus says things in our passage today like, the kingdom of God is in your midst as he's eyeballing the Jewish leaders. The real Jesus walks out of the grave on Easter Sunday and he sort of wipes his feet on death while the angels stand terrified as he goes by. The real Jesus commands an army of thousands of angels and is so implacably opposed to evil that he will condemn evildoers if they haven't repented when he comes again. And the real Jesus is still being patient, giving people an opportunity to repent. But his patience doesn't last forever. There will be an irreversible separation. You might wonder what the vultures are about in verse 37. Actually, I'm not going to try and comment on that now. Um, I think I know what it's about. I'm going to, if you're in a home group, then I've written something. You can ask about it in your home group this week, if you like. Where does this leave us? Because um, we, ne- we need to wind up soon. Uh, verse 33. Let's circle back to where we began, shall we? Verse 33. It's really the closest you get to a command in this passage. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. Okay? So in some sense, you've got to be a loser if you want to preserve Lot's wife is Jesus' illustration of this. We haven't quite got time to look at her now, but she's in Genesis chapter 19, if you want. You will want then, I think if you're a Christian, you will want to, to lose your life to preserve it. So what does that look like? What does losing your life look like nowadays for a Christian? Well, let's try and break it down. I think it might mean losing your Sundays. You familiar with that? Because you become a Christian, you get connected with a local church, and you think, this is good. This is other people like me. This is local Christians. But... You lose your Sundays that way, don't you? Because, you know, Christians have a duty to meet with other Christians, not give up meeting together. And Jesus wants you to be part of a local church. But you give away some leisurely time on a Sunday morning. Might give up some travel plans, some city breaks, some social stuff that you could have done. You might also lose many hours in prayer. I mean, you think about the time you spend praying during your life, if you're a Christian, then that's, that's a lot of time that you forsake you lose many of you were here at prayer meeting this week it was a wonderful time but you gave up your Wednesday evening so that we could pray together and over the course of your life you might give up many of them I suppose you could have taken up another hobby instead of prayer but now that you're a child of God you know that you want to pray and you lose that way Uh, you might lose Sunday's prayer um, wealth 
Some of you are losing a lot of wealth because you're giving generously, you're giving away, you know it's more blessed to give than to receive and you think, well, I'm, I'm definitely losing out there in practical terms. Some of you, you might have lost family or friends who can't understand your decision to follow Jesus. So you think, oh, those relationships, then they're not as close as they were. I, I feel I've lost out relationally with people I used to be close to because of Christ. Or some of you, you may really feel like I'm in danger of losing my life. And um, there are members of our church who have fled for their life from countries where it wasn't safe for them to openly follow Jesus. And this is very real for them in, in a holistic sense. I, I might lose my life if I decide to go ahead with this. So why on earth then would you become a Christian? <laughs> because oh, I really am going to be a loser. This is so much I stand to forsake and lose. Well, thankfully, Jesus says here, you preserve. Do you see, verse 33, whoever loses their life will preserve it. So let's have a think about that before we finish. We talked about losing Sundays, but actually the, God, Jesus promises that if, if you become a Christian, there is an endless Sabbath. There are, there are days of rest just stretching out into eternity if you're going to be part of the kingdom of God. So you, you don't lose out anything that way. You gain, you preserve we talked about losing many hours in prayer, but if you're the king, in the kingdom of God, you gain the affection of a father who will never let you go. You gain the intimacy of prayer with your maker. You are totally known and totally loved. That, that's not a loss. That's, a, that's the deepest relationship that you gain and you exercise whenever you want to do so. We talked about losing wealth, but if you're the kingdom, in the kingdom of God, you gain an inheritance which is of innumerable economic value. I mean, you, you, you gain security forever. You, you gain, not only that, but you gain other brothers and sisters in the worldwide church who care for the needy. So even if you fell destitute, you would still be looked after. So you, you just gain so much more than you ever give up. We talked about losing friends and family, but if you're in the kingdom of God, you, you gain the best friend of all in Jesus Christ. And you have the offer to make to your friends and family. Can I just share with you what I've discovered about Jesus? Because I would love you to have this too. And you, we talked about losing your life potentially, but if you're in the kingdom of God, you can't actually lose your life. You, so Jesus uses the word soul here. You pres preserve your soul and you can't lose your soul. It's in the bank. So the, the worst you can do, if you're a Christian, apparently 11 Christians get put to death for their faith every day in the world. If you're one of those 11 today, you can't lose. What, you, what happens to you if you get martyred today is you get promoted because you had faith in Christ and you can go to heaven and be with him. And then you get a new body when the resurrection comes. So you preserve your soul. So how often do you think about the Roman Empire? Uh, you might like to ask each other afterwards. It's a bit of a non-issue, really. It's a curiosity. But um, how often you think about the kingdom of God, that's different. That will affect the way you do everything, whether you're willing to lose anything. And I can imagine a church that is so peacefully captivated by the great peacemaker and his kingdom they're constantly leaning towards that day. They're seeking justice and peace through nonviolent means, wherever it may be found. That, that, perhaps particularly at the moment, would make the world wonder.
Let's pray together. kingdom of God is in your midst. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We don't want to vest our hopes in any earthly kingdom. We're a bit fed up of empires, to be honest, Lord, and wars and rumors of wars. We're so brokenhearted about the world we live in. But if, if you're the peacemaker and, and you are the kingdom of God, then we're interested. We want to lean towards that. We long for that day when it will come finally. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to lose our lives even the things we consider very precious to us in order that we may preserve it Amen